it's uh, my honor to facilitate this discussion among people who have made our great university prouder and better and stronger over many, many years of very, very hard work. A lot of sacrifice, a lot of experience that we want to tap into this morning. Uh, I'm going to briefly introduce them because I understand that there are three or four people here who have been living in Timbuktu and have had no access to the internet or newspapers for years. And so for the benefit of those three or four people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce them. Let me start over here with, with uh, Bob Sweeney, our Senior Vice President for Development and Public Affairs. In 2001, Bob successfully completed a $1.5 billion uh, capital campaign for the university. The university was so pleased they immediately launched a new campaign and doubled the amount to $3 billion. Little did they know we'd be hit by one of the worst recessions in American history, making Bob's job rather difficult. Now, Bob, while we don't envy you, we appreciate the Herculean effort and the tremendous energy that you put in to realize your goal and our goal of a privately funded public university. That's a really important phrase to remember, a privately funded public university. Uh, next to Bob uh, is our Executive Vice President, Provost of the University of Virginia, and the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Health Sciences and Public Policy, Tim Garson. He's responsible, of course, for the planning and operation of the university's 11 schools, as well as academic planning. He also co-chairs the Commission on the Future of the University. We'll be asking him about that. Prior to his appointment as provost, Dr. Garson served as university vice president and dean at the School of Medicine here. In addition, he served on the White House panel on health policy and as chair of the American College of Cardiology's task force on the uninsured. Uh, in 2007, he published a terrific book, and I hope you will read it if you haven't already, entitled Healthcare Half-Truths. Healthcare Half-Truths. Too many myths, not enough reality. If ever there was a time to read that book, it's now. Alas, Tim will soon be the Senior Vice President for Health Policy and Health Systems at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, and their gain is very much the University of Virginia's loss. Thank you for being here, Tim. Uh, next, uh, a fellow that you, you might vaguely recognize, uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the University of Virginia and Chief Financial Officer of the Board of Visitors, Leonard Sandridge. He joined the UVA administration in 1967. 1967. There you go. You make me feel so young. Oh, I'm sorry. I, it's my Italian nature. And over the years, he's also served as university comptroller, uh, director of the budget, executive assistant of the president. Leonard keeps the trains running on time, and they really do run on time, the vast majority of the time. Uh, he's responsible for just a few tiny things, like the operation of all non-academic support areas at the university, including athletics, no problems there, student affairs, management and budget, finance, human resources, emergency preparedness, police and compliance, as well as the financial and managerial oversight of the health system. In his spare time, Leonard sleeps. <laughs> and finally, it's, it's a particular honor to uh, introduce here in one of his final public appearances as president of the University of Virginia, our seventh president, uh, John Castine. A few of you may not know this, but President Castine is a triple who with three degrees in English from the University of Virginia, a BA in 1965. And by the way, it means he started 
when John F. Kennedy was only halfway through his first year as president of the United States. I, I felt I had to balance what I said about Leonard. Okay. His MA uh, in 1966 and his PhD in 1970. He was appointed as president of the university in 1990. With two decades of service in this position, President Castine becomes one of the longest serving presidents uh, in the university's history, indeed, I think, in the United States. And at UVA, second only to our first president, uh, Edwin Alderman, who served for 27 years. Mr. Castine, as some of you will remember, was also dean of admissions. He probably made, there you go. He made the mistake of admitting some of you uh, from 1975 to 1982. And then he was appointed Virginia's Secretary of Education by former Governor Chuck Robb. He was born and raised in Portsmouth, uh, by the way, and as I mentioned, he's now been closely associated to our great benefit with this university for close to 50 years. Uh, we're losing three of these four gentlemen uh, very soon. Those of us who remain here at the university are feeling very much like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. We, we really don't know exactly what we're going to do or how we're going to do it, uh, but we hope to be as successful as Macaulay was in that movie. I'm going to start uh, using the privileges of the chair here, and sometimes we're going to be serious, and sometimes we're going to be light. Sometimes we're going to talk about the past. Sometimes we're going to talk about the future. Uh, we're going to try and save a few minutes for, uh, for questions about uh, non-legal matters. Uh, and then uh, we'll move forward from there, and we're looking forward to it. And John, obviously, I want to I start uh, with you. And over your tenure, and I think this fact is incredible, and very few people have focused on it, you've presided over the addition of 134 buildings at the University of Virginia. 134. Now, with all those buildings, there you go, absolutely. Now, the truth is, some must be your favorites, and, and others, you know, less so. I've heard that, you know, you're not maybe as crazy about JPJ uh, as you might be about others, partly because Leonard enjoys the bull riding and the monster trucks over there so much. Uh, but what, what are your favorites? Uh, what, what projects might have been done differently, and what's needed most now, additionally, at the university? Uh, maybe my uh, sort of the top favorite in the list, I haven't thought about it this way before, Larry, but so I'm, I'm extemporizing for a bit. Maybe the new McIntyre School, Robertson Hall. Uh, what I admire about that is the, first of all, the, the quality of the design. Second, the attention to environmental impact of the building. And third, the fact that the building works so well and that it is hidden in a sense behind or in the shadow of what in our time has been the, the older part of the university now. Obviously, if, if that building had been tucked over there prior to the construction of this building in Conk and Rouse, it would have been a little different. But I like the way it's been integrated into the fabric of the university. Leonard and I decided in, in probably 1990 that we were going to try to build within the footprint and not spread out into the neighborhoods because we felt that it could be done. And the university has a considerable amount of land on the west side behind the Birdwood Golf Course that's available for future expansion, for relocation of schools, or whatever might be appropriate in the future. The biggest disappointment in the bunch is simply a miscalculation 
Leonard and I worked for years on how to locate a set of buildings for the fine and performing arts in such a way as to create a community. The Arts Grounds Project is one that was on the table from almost the beginning. It was very hard physically because of the way the land goes. Uh, shortly after we opened the Studio Art Building, which is a superb building, it hit me that there was a basic miscalculation. The state nowadays, unlike what it's done for most of the time when I've been president, the state nowadays will take major academic projects and bundle them up in state bond issues. We were dealing with private financing the need to raise money from donors for our buildings. And it hit me that if we had relocated the entire School of Architecture into a modern building down at the intersection of Ivy Road and Emmett Street, that was the area that we had in mind to be the center for the arts, if we had moved the whole school there and let the architecture school build sort of a dream school, what it would want for the future, the state would have paid the bill. And we would have had uh, Campbell Hall, the School of Architecture's building, to recycle as space for a much larger studio art facility, uh, as space for performing arts and other things. And the future would have been very different. But it's, it's, I remember learning in uh, actually Psych 1 about functional fixedness, where you're so fixed on an outcome that you don't see alternatives as you're moving toward it. And I would say that's what happened to us with that. Leonard's never quite bought into my acknowledgement that we screwed that up. <laughs> but <clears throat> but I, you know, I, I realized all of a sudden that there was another way to think and that we had missed it. So it's not exactly a disappointment, because what we're doing is beautiful. But we've, we've never developed the backing for a concert hall. Uh, we will live within the current museum and an addition that's planned indefinitely into the future. We will complete the buildings for dance and the expansions of drama and the music buildings that will go, well, there is a uh, rehearsal hall under construction now uh, down near the tracks uh, below the arts buildings. We'll eventually and slowly fill in uh, the necessary buildings for music. But the, what we missed was the logical alternative where we could have passed along the expense to a, a state bond package and I think it would have had a dramatic impact on how we would have used that, uh, that space. You know, you, you reminded me, I really was going to start out with kind of an unfair question for you um, as to what you would miss most. Would you miss uh, student demonstrations, uh, controversial faculty members, or, uh, or the uh, interference and underfunding of the state? That, that's why I thought of that, since you mentioned the fact that the state would have... <laughs> would have actually put, had to put up some money for that. But I won't ask you to tell which of those three. No, Larry, I, I think that, and I think Leonard and Tim and Bob would tell you the same thing. The notion that faculty members individually or as a group are a problem when you do the kind of work we do is a myth. Uh, faculty members are inventive, they're ingenious. Uh, if you learn to listen to criticism and to use it rather than to fight it, uh, Faculty members, no matter what their temperaments, make huge contributions. Um, there are a lot of things that would not have happened here without a whole lot of faculty uh, involvement. There was a tremendous disagreement over a building that I do, in fact, uh, admire tremendously, the, the John Paul Jones Arena. And so we had a meeting one night over in uh, the chemistry auditorium to which we invited the faculty to come and explained the logic of building that building and how the funding flows 
and what the impact of the building is on academic programs. Uh, it's fairly dramatic because, among other things, the largest donor to that project is also the principal financial sponsor of our Department of Environmental Sciences. And there's a relationship between one kind of support and another kind. Uh, I don't know what one might have expected from that meeting, but in fact, we didn't get stoned or attacked. I would say it was a, it was a constructive evening. And students are wonderful. I mean, the students have the most incredible understanding of what's going on around here. Not all of them care. They may have other interests. <laughs> but you'll run into a student who has some sort of ingenious thought. Meredith Wu, the dean of the college, has an assistant named Kendall. What is Kendall's last name? Walton? Wallace. Kendall Wallace. I happen to be with Meredith, and Kendall is one year out of school, I think, in China doing some work, and realized that she was the student who had pushed us to develop what is now an emerging major. And the student who is a critic of the academic program makes a huge difference. Uh, there's a wonderful book by a retired Harvard dean about how to run a university, and what he says is listen to the students and do what they want. That, that's, his, uh, <laughs> that's his final advice. So in state politics, uh, you know, we've lived in that for so long that we sort of understand what's coming and what's not coming. Uh, the state could have done much worse things to us than it has. The restructuring legislation in 2005-2006, which reflected five years' worth of work that Leonard and Colette Sheehy, who was the vice president responsible for the general operation of the university, but also she's our liaison to Richmond, and other people worked for a long time to pass legislation that saved their necks in this recession. If we had been bound up with the types of state restraints on spending and hiring, if we had been compelled to lay off our people instead of finding a way to operate the university, within the existing workforce. We would have been in a very different situation. So, you know, there are, it's easy to complain about the state's handling of its finances. You wouldn't handle your household finances like that. You'd go, you'd go bust. Uh, but once you understand the dynamic and, and how they get to where they are, you can focus on other ways to solve the university's problems. And this restructuring legislation has now been it offers other institutions the chance to qualify. It has now been uh, adopted or pursued by most of Virginia's public colleges. At first, there was a lot of skepticism. Employees were frightened of it. There's always the fear that the university is about to do something bad to somebody. In this recession, the fact that Leonard has been able to, to, to show people how far in advance he has the budget planned and managed how far in advance he can commit that we will not be using layoffs. That capacity makes a huge difference. Uh, plus, people have confidence in, in Leonard and Colette and others who stand up publicly and say, here's what we will do, and then do it. You, you've just seen a good example of why John has been so successful as president. Uh, I'd never heard the state defended that way before. They could have been much worse to us. <laughs> I, 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 like, I love that, and I salute you. John, you have a diplomacy and tact that I lack entirely. Uh, if, let, me turn, let me turn to Leonard now. You know, Leonard, you and John have had an amazing relationship, working relationship, personal relationship, really a unique partnership over many, many years to the university's great benefit. 
Um, I think people would be interested if you would explain how you two divided up the responsibilities of running this multi-billion dollar international university. And I hope that you will tell people a little bit about how it started at Morton Frozen Foods. <laughs> well, let me start with, start with that. I, um, it, should have, it should have given me some hints of what was to come. I should say, as a preamble, John and I did not make this connection for 20 years after it occurred. But in 1963, I guess it was, uh, when he was uh, a, a student here at the university and I was a student at the University of Richmond, uh, never having met each other or anything, uh, it turns out that we were both uh, in summer work at Morton Frozen Foods in my hometown of Crozet uh, where they literally made the, the product that was uh, the TV dinners and those kinds of things. Uh, it was a plant that was on two sides of a fairly significant road. And what we discovered was that John was on one side of the road loading tractor trailers. I was on the other side of the road unloading tractor trailers. <laughs> We've always worried about whether they were the same tractor trailers. Some, some symbolism there to what has continued, I might say. Um, but as it turns out, we were there on the same shifts. We both um, tried to get double shifts because we could make a little bit more. I should have known then, in fact, if I had known all the facts then, I might have realized what was destined. He tells me he was making $1.29 an hour, and I never made more than a dollar and a quarter an hour. So uh, it was destined from the beginning to be uh, less than, you know, what we might have hoped for. Um, I also should say that John takes his buildings very seriously, if I can just slip that in, sure. Larry. Feel free. Um, he, he is clearly a frustrated architect. I mean, uh, I've never taken a set of plans to him that he didn't improve upon. Um, but he also has high expectations for the use of the buildings. Uh, he does like JPJ a lot more than he's acknowledging, and he likes the performance piece of it. And this started shortly after he became president 20 years ago. He told me over and over again that he was very disappointed uh, that we did not have the kind of concerts and performances that we used to have in Memorial Gym. And I acknowledged that for a while. And then after a year or two, it became my fault that we didn't <laughs> have performances in Memorial Gym. And finally, he got so fed up with it, he built a place where they should be. And we had the Rolling Stones in the stadium. We had uh, all kinds of very good performances in JPJ, ones that were country music, they were uh, concerts of various kinds, and I finally got nerve enough to go to him and say, John, at this point, do you feel like that we have created a program that is as good as what you remember from occurring in Memorial Gym? He looked at me straight in the eye and said, not until you deliver Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> So he still can't get no satisfaction. What you? No, but he got Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> the not only got Jimmy Buffett, he got me a life-size 
oversized fabric picture of Jimmy Buffett that I've got hanging in my office. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, what about the partnership as, as yeah, a, you ignored the serious part, Leonard? <laughs> um, I think we have had a good partnership. I certainly feel that way. I, I think we have been fortunate. Uh, the things that I particularly enjoy doing, uh, I think John would probably say there are days he would just assume not do them. Uh, the things that he uh, has been so good at and it does so well, I know I'm not good at, and I would never uh, suggest that I could do as well as he has. And I think that uh, our relationship has very seriously been one that um, I admire. I think we have been able to be extraordinarily frank with each other. Um, I, I can't imagine how frank we could have improved upon that relationship very much. <laughs> Certainly, I'm still working here, and I have to say that. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely. That's the ultimate test, right? It's the ultimate test. Leonard, thank you very much, and we'll, we're going to have some further discussions about all these items in a moment, but I want to ask Tim. Tim, you know, the provost does so many things that are critical to the academic function, which is supposed to be the central function of any university, but maybe hiring deans is, is the most important among them because those are the key individuals who make things happen in the various disciplines. We have Meredith Wu here uh, as well. So obviously you've hired some great people. Uh, but uh, I wonder if you could, could share with us how you looked at that task and how you went about it. First, <clears throat> first thing I did was I told people that I tried to gain less than one dean with all the dinners. Uh, and, and I failed. Um, but. I, I think uh, it, it's really interesting looking back in retrospect, and it's turned out to be eight hiring eight deans and a museum director and a couple of vice provosts. And the credit goes to John Castine for saying, all right, let's make a partnership out of this. You get it down to the people you, you want, come to me, and we'll discuss it. And, and I think that that partnership with John uh, has just been phenomenal over the years that I've been here both, and thank you John in public, both as the medical school dean and as the provost, and really saying, okay, you get it to where you want it, and then let's discuss it. Uh, what I would tell you is I, at the end, at the end of the eighth dean, uh, I was talking outside John's office with one of his assistants, and I said, you know, they've all got similar characteristics. And she said, well, tell me about those characteristics. And I said, well, they're really smart, and they're really smarter than I am, which is not hard. They are very accomplished. They're well-known throughout the country and throughout the world. Every one of them has a good sense of humor. They don't take themselves too seriously. They play in the sandbox, and they're not too arrogant. And the door opens, and John sticks his head out and says, except for one. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and? No. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll talk so later. We'll they're talk phenomenal. Later. And, and it's, I, I think, really, the, the advantage to the university of hiring so many at the same time is this is a group that sees themselves as working well together which this university is so well known for that every one of you alumni know this, this notion of collaboration works here. And the idea of, of ha having eight of 12 deans, um, including the admission dean, working 
together so well so early in their time as deans uh, has really been an advantage. I loved your phrase. I got to tell you, I just love that phrase, not too arrogant. You all have to understand, you know, faculty members and deans are faculty members. And that's the best you do with faculty is not too arrogant. That's the top box. It goes, <laughs> it goes down from there. So that's, that's really tremendous. Uh, except, except for one. Except for one, <laughs> right. Except for one unnamed person. Uh, let me move now to Bob. Bob, you've, you've long talked about, uh, for all the years that I've known you, you've talked about, as I mentioned, the, the ideal role of the University of Virginia as a privately funded public university that aspires to and achieves greatness while staying true to Jefferson's public right. mandate. Right. I mean, this is a tough thing to do. How can we achieve that going forward? And also, how can we connect to an increasingly diverse group of alumni who are all over the world, who are doing wonderful things, but who often have a hard time reconnecting to Charlottesville? Right. Well, it's a, it, it, this is interesting in that uh, the notion of this privately financed public has been something that all of us have thought about for a good while, and it was really forced upon us by the state starting in 1990. But for me personally, it really uh, became uh, a, a very important uh, intellectual journey for me uh, because at, uh, early in 2001, we had concluded the last campaign uh, 12 31 2000 and on January 23rd 2001 and that the, the, the campaign that we had concluded at almost uh, a billion five was the largest in the history of uh, public education ever and on the 23rd of that month three short weeks later I get an email from the president who those of us who get them they're quite cryptic and all it said was B what will it take to ratchet up development J and from that moment, I, I knew that, if it, that I just couldn't do it if it was just about more money, just more money. And, and it, uh, then we, we really started the discussion of, uh, and this is where I think uh, Leonard and Tim and the president have given me uh, immunity uh, in terms of uh, being able to speak more than they would in hyperbole. And so the, the notion of this privately financed public, the first truly great public university, was really a way of, of publicly framing an aspiration that we were setting out uh, to achieve already. And that was the, something that John mentioned was uh, greater independence from the Commonwealth of Virginia. And to do that, we would have to have a more market-driven tuition. And thus, the notion of Access UVA, kind of the the quintessential uh, student financial aid program in the country, and then this new uh, restructuring agreement that allowed the university uh, uh, control over its own destiny. But the third piece of it had to be a philanthropy program that was uh, very comparable and competitive with the finest private universities in the country. So the $3 billion campaign uh, became something that, that really for us, unlike Stanford and Columbia and others who were uh, in the, the game at that level with us right now, this is a major uh, undertaking for the University of Virginia. We're, we're within striking distance. But what I think became important to me was the ability to frame an institutional aspiration around the notion of something that seems almost contradictory in the 
uh, the idea of a privately financed public. The, the other element of connecting alumni is something that I've think, thinking, I'm thinking about all the time, and that is uh, uh, Tom Falders and, uh, and team have built a, an extraordinary reunion program, and uh, we will have uh, somewhere 15, 18% of our uh, alums coming back. Let's just assume that of those that wanted to come back, only half of those could come, and that we have 20% attendance and only half of those that really want to come can come, and that there's really a, a constituency of 40% of our alums that would love to be back at reunion. That means that there is 60% of our alumni population that really just isn't interested in reunions, isn't interested in this kind of relationship. And so my dream is that, that we will have a relationship with our alums that an alum could graduate from the University of Virginia and never return to Charlottesville and on their deathbed be able to say they had this wonderful relationship with UVA. And that would mean that through the use of technology, through the use of regional um, uh, connections, through the use of all the uh, the, 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 the social networking available to us, that somehow we connect with you where you want to be connected with, on the areas that are of interest to you, uh, of the things that you're passionate about. And so a lot of the work that we're doing, Larry, right now is, is really looking at how do we understand our alumni better uh, through the, the, the use of, of analytics and uh, uh, modeling and all of that, of who are these alums, what motivates them, what are they passionate about, and how do we connect with them where they are, not where we want them to be. We, we'd love all of uh, every alum in a reunion year to pe be here in Charlottesville, but that's never going to happen. How do we connect with your classmates in a way that's powerful to them, even if coming back to Charlottesville isn't what motivates the relationship with the Is university? Is that where social media there's in. no question, and and what what we're what we have had to learn, and and, and I think John would uh, maybe he'd admit this that that uh, that what we've tried to do is use technology but maintain control, and what I think we're learning right now is as social uh, media uh, moves out for all the connection that we want with our students, uh, uh, talking to prospective students. Uh, us talking to alums, alums talking to one another, that we, in effect, have to give up control of the message. And what we have to depend on is that our message is accurate and powerful and compelling so that the alums, in their own networks, are saying kind of what a truth well told about the university, but there will be things that we hear about ourselves from you that we don't want to hear, and I think that's actually good. So this, is a, this really moves the university into a new place relative to, uh, to kind of the ownership that alums have in the institution because their voice may well become the defining voice in interpreting the University of Virginia as opposed to those things that come out of our public affairs area. I, I liked everything you said, especially the deathbed metaphor, except I have to append it. I know you'll agree that you can't rewrite a will on your deathbed. It's very important to do that well in advance. Just to, I'm just well, hinting to people who may well, be thinking about it. As right? something for these alums, we have found that uh, if you want to live forever, uh, create a trust for the university or a bequest expectancy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but I know John believes this. 
we've really discovered a lot of people who do think they're going to live forever. <laughs> That's one of the big problems. But anyway, um, let me, I'm going to ask some, some, some tough questions. And you may give a long answer, you may give a short answer, and maybe there isn't any clear answer. The first one is, how big should the University of Virginia grow, if at all? Maybe it shouldn't grow any further than it is right now. How big should it grow? John. I, uh, I did a, uh, a column in the Alumni News, but to find the whole, it's now called the University of Virginia Magazine again. Uh, you have to go to a website to find the whole thing. What I did was work the numbers to see what it would take to be self-sufficient in the way Bob's describing and to generate the kinds of revenue that are necessary to compete right at the top. That is, to compete at the level of, say, whatever's ranked first in the country to about 15th among major universities. The, the numbers work out, Larry, to where we would need to have something like 38,000 students in total enrollment. Wow. Now, that number, if you assume the state's not going to pay its share, that's one of the basic assumptions. If the state is paying its share, then the enrollment can float downward. But at the moment, there's no sign that the state is ready to raise the revenues it needs to, to do that. Uh, the question of whether it's possible is kind of an interesting one. Those of you in my class will recall that when we were in school, there were about 5,000 students and we all thought it was the perfect size. Uh, Coeducation initially produced an enrollment. There was no limitation on the number of women. So when Ernie Earn oversaw that process, the effect of the first four years, 1970 to 74, was doubling the enrollment. At the beginning of coeducation, we had about 7,000 students. At the end of that process, we had about 14,000. Then if you move forward in time, the board adopted a growth policy in the late 80s that has taken the enrollment to about 22,000. Now, the problem with it is that the 22,000 increase does not involve any strategic plan as to where the students will study or what schools will grow larger or what new schools will, will create. It's simply incrementation of whatever it is. And the, the argument I made in that piece is that the university can't let its size be driven simply by the number of enrollments, that it needs to be driven in part by the work we intend to do. Uh, this place ought to have a school of global studies. One of the things that drove students into international activity after 9-11 was the realization that there is, in fact, a global competition that's multifaceted. They saw one aspect of it, guerrilla military, in 9-11, but they also saw probably before the markets did, the opportunities to, to do business in China. And they realized that the business was going to be a combination of collaboration and competition. But if you look at what we've done in the curriculum to respond to that impulse in students, we're not quite there. Uh, Meredith and her predecessor have, in fact, added majors in response to that. But we do not have the kind of uh, regulated entry into course programs that will lead to ultimate options that are very wide and give the student the chance four years later, age 22, to make the best possible choice. The overwhelming majority of our top entering math students never take math here. 
And there is a kind of algorithm that says that students who don't take math in their first year don't major in science. Students who don't take math in their first year don't go to medical school. But you can also extend it to other schools because the, the types of testing and the types of curriculum analysis done for admission to graduate business schools or to many graduate programs uh, includes an assessment of the, of the quality of the math program in the undergraduate years. One of the reasons I wanted Meredith Wu to come as dean is that Meredith is more on the quantitative side of political science than on the theoretical side, although she does both. And we have, in a sense, kind of drifted off to one side of the spectrum of uh, social science uh, work. And Meredith carries in her own head uh, the kinds of expertise, the kinds of knowledge, the ways of using quantitative analysis that can be used to build departments or schools or whatever comes out of this that have the capacity to play on all different parts of the floor. And the, again, the absence of a school of global studies is one of the things that I would mark as a failure of my time. We saw in 1990 that we had to have a way to prepare students to compete globally and that the competition would not be driven off traditional majors. That there had to be tremendous increase in the competence of people who met the, ma the, uh, well, the math requirement, but the, the language requirement. In the college, we have a modern language requirement. If your years were like mine, to satisfy it, you had to make C or better on two languages for two years or one language for three years, I think was how it worked. There's nothing in that rule that says you've got to be competent to do business in the language or to read the literature language without a trot or in some other way to use the language. And students, particularly those taking the strategic languages, Arabic, Mandarin, and so on, those, and, and, and Spanish, those students have a different expectation about their competency. They want to go to those places, they want to compete, and they want to win. And they know that the language and the skills that mathematics can represent are crucial. So I think in a way students will drive the changes that have to happen but it is probably always the case that we lag somewhat behind their, it's not always articulated, but their collective vision of where they have to go. They don't want to drift. They want, and they, they don't, our students are remarkably patriotic. Uh, they see the international competition as it, as it takes a new shape, as a challenge to the nation, and they intend for the nation to win. And that perspective seems to be embedded in the institution. I've been fascinated by the relationship between foreign students, of whom we now have a, almost 2,000, and our, let's say, native students. They see the same future, and they see the possibility of collaborative work that would build strength on all sides. It's no longer the case that, for example, students from Singapore or from China who come here intend to stay here. A few do. But the great intention nowadays is to go back and build nation strength in their home countries. And so they see the connections they're building here as part of their national futures. And our students see that the same way. It's much more sophisticated than what I read in the papers and the magazines. You know, so many of the, I think so many of our uh, alums may be surprised to know how good these international students are. Uh, not this past semester, but the prior year in my uh, American uh, government class, I only gave out two A-pluses out of 400. Both went to international students who were competing with American students who presumably had been exposed to 
American government politics all their lives. Maybe that's why they didn't do well. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Leonard, what's your view on growth? I would be uh, in total agreement with John as far as um, the fact that we are going to have to seriously consider the size of this place. I think it will be larger. Uh, there are some very practical reasons and then uh, some strategies that I think that we'll have to pay attention to. Uh, the practical reasons are that there are so many uh, very qualified students in the Commonwealth that uh, expect to have the right to be considered at the University of Virginia. Uh, they're perfectly capable of doing the work. I think that uh, that will have to be dealt with in some form as we go forward. Um, and I think that most of us would agree that it ought to be dealt with in a way that does not uh, displace the current commitment we have to a mix of out-of-state students uh, at the undergraduate level, about 30% of our undergraduate students from out-of-state. That, that distinguishes this institution. It's important to what we want to do. It accommodates the international students, Larry, that you made reference to. I think the, uh, from, from my perspective, uh, from the non-academic perspective, the piece that uh, we're going to have to get right, um, in addition to, to growing strategically, programmatically, as, as John has suggested, is we, we can't make the mistake that we may have made in the mid-'70s where we let the enrollment get in front of the resources, uh, not just dollars, but buildings and faculty and people that will deliver the programs. And so uh, done properly, um, my view is it can strengthen this institution, uh, improve some of the, uh, the, the program areas where we don't have quite the critical mass that we ought to not detract from its um, uh, attraction uh, as a place where the undergraduate experience is very, very special. That means we have to do things to make it feel smaller than maybe it really is. Uh, but it's hard for me to imagine that the next administration won't have to deal with this issue in the next five to ten years. Now, what I fear is growth by the current plan, where eventually we're at, say, 38,000 students, and they're all doing the same things that we do now. And we haven't created the, the strategically uh, defined uh, options for them. We should have a school of environmental policy. That's the big issue. Uh, in many of the states, it's the big global issue. Uh, I sit in various kinds of international dialogues, and there is tremendous hostility toward the U.S. on grounds that we are huge consumers of resources, that we generate a tremendous amount of pollution, and that we take relatively, by comparison to, say, Spain or Italy, where this is a, the big issue on the national agenda. Uh, we take the environment, they, they believe, sort of for granted. I've got to go to London on... Uh, Sunday for a series of discussions that will include what we're doing about environmental damage. And you can imagine what I'm going to hear about BP in the, in the Gulf. Uh, a university of this quality ought to have a school where change agents who work on environmental issues are products of the university. We have now a way to, uh, to educate people for leadership in government, the Batten School is an ingenious challenge to the traditional structure of the university. The Darden School has the same kind of relationship to the world of business. But we're not there yet with regard to what is becoming the big international issue, that we consume so much and we generate so much uncontrolled damage as we other nations see it. Uh, 
students would, would grab that, they would get it. And uh, it's not a, a matter of increasing the scale of environmental science. The strategic point that Leonard raises is crucial. Environmental science here is first rate. It stands on its own feet. But the environmental policy piece, the piece that prepares people to go out and change the way government behaves, change the way corporations behave, that's, that's the piece that's missing. And it would be a tremendous asset to the university to be able to, to say we are the place that developed this kind of expertise. And after BP, yes. <laughs> I think after the BP disaster, that's going to gain momentum uh, in academic and other circles. Uh, Tim and Bob, you can answer the growth question if you want, but I'm going to throw out another question for the, for the entire panel here because I know it concerns many, many alums. And again, it's a tough question, maybe unanswerable. Can we here at the University of Virginia, given our high academic standards, which I hope no one really wants to compromise, sometimes I worry, um, can we really have successful athletic teams without compromising those academic standards? Who would, Tim, as provost, what's your view on that? Let me come back to the growth thing for yeah, a minute. Yeah, go ahead. And then, sure. and, then, yeah. and then turn to Leonard. Um, you should run for office, they, they, Tim. They, well, I, I'm going to get you to run. We do this together. It may be important for, for the alumni to know that we've got an asset here that I think as we talk about growth, uh, paradoxically, I'm going to say the word CASEL, which is the Center for the Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning. It comes out of Bob Pianta and the Curry School. And in fact, as we think about growth, what Bob and his colleagues are now beginning to be able to do is understand how to teach doctors, lawyers, historians, environmentalists, better, and actually experiment in different ways of teaching, different ways of learning, and so that we're not going to do this anymore as, as blind people of saying, okay, let's grow here, let's think about strategy without actually being able to measure it. So I think as we move forward, what we've got the advantage of being able to do here and there is essentially none other in the United States that can do this, is to do it thoughtfully. We know we have to grow, but we know we have to grow in ways that are well supported by faculty. Uh, Leonard used the term critical mass. That is a really difficult concept to then put a number to of how many people are needed in a department uh, to form critical mass. This is the sort of question that can be answered over time uh, by the Curry School, and ultimately, not with the Curry School doing it themselves, but teaching the entire university how to do it, so the rest of us can do it. So we've got an asset here that you wouldn't normally think of that, and, and is very unusual in other universities. So we can do it thoughtfully. We know we have to grow, but which areas and how and how to teach it, uh, we've got a leg up on. And I can't wait to hear Leonard's answer on athletics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to wait because Bob has one, I think, I don't know on which part. We'll find out. Mine is on athletics, and I, I am an unabashed uh, supporter of it. Uh, I, I serve on the Virginia Athletics Foundation Board, and I, I will say first that, um, that 
the one thing people need to know about athletics is that there's not one dime of university money that goes into it, that it's totally self-supporting. Uh, and the second is, if you were to take a look at the overall quality of our students and the overall quality of our programs, that when you look at the uh, Director's Cup, which is overall athletics excellence um, for the season, that we, you know, in uh, February, I think we were number two, we will probably end up in the top ten. I, uh, because I've been involved, I went to the uh, awards dinner that they had for academic performance of athletes, and you'd be amazed at the, uh, at the academic performance of a number of teams. So uh, this is something John Castine said to me uh, as he involved me in both JPJ and the uh, Carl Smith Center, is that great institutions are not selectively great. They, they are comprehensively great, and that we ought to be able to, with our value system, be able to compete with Duke and Stanford and Notre Dame and the finest institutions in the country that perform well athletically and also uh, graduate their students and, and do it with, with a level of, uh, of ethics and values. Now, it, it, it's going to be, for us, it is a harder, it, you know, that we can't take the type of student that some other competitor institutions will take. So, and there are only so many uh, halfbacks that are, you know, six foot, 210 pounds and run four, three. I mean, and not all of them are really great academically. So we may We've have We've tried to... to avoid talking about Blacksburg. Really, <laughs> we have. I, I'm going to ask you, you know, just to avoid that, but, Bob, at all, but, right. at all costs. But again, I, you know, it's self-evident to, to me I, that you know, my position is that, yes, we can be really good uh, and a really high-quality institution that, that, that would make these alums proud. That's, hardly anybody can disagree with that. Let me ask John and Leonard for their response, and I think Leonard is, is anxious to duck it. Go ahead, Leonard. No, I, I uh, agree completely with what... Bob said, uh, we have 25 varsity sports here, and uh, when one looks at the vast majority of those sports, uh, you see extraordinary uh, student quality, just as you do in the student body. I think most of the time this question is raised, it's focused on uh, three or four uh, sports, and John uh, nailed this one last night uh, in his comments to the alumni. Um, there's no question in my mind that when you see what Duke does in basketball and what Stanford does in more sports than, than we have, uh, there's no reason for us to think that we can't uh, compete effectively, uh, appropriately for the University of Virginia and do it with uh, student athletes who are truly first students and athletes uh, that are talented and capable of winning uh, second. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much uh, of the opinion that uh, it's doable uh, and I think important to underscore that, that we do it in most of the sports. John, you've wrestled with it for 20 years. What's your view? Well, it goes back before that because Gene Corrigan and a few others, and I, I think Linda was involved in some of this too, in the late 70s did an analysis of whether or not we could compete at the top. We have sometimes gotten it right. Uh, I, I think most of us see uh, a period of, of high-level performance in football as being possible to gain. Uh, George was a, a, a spectacular coach. 
you think about Terry Holland's qualities as a coach, Terry was able to teach his, uh, his players the routes of access to the university's culture. Uh, Wally Walker was a student leader in addition to being a great athlete. And that kind of capacity to engage students in the university, rather than pulling them out of the university and trying to make them live a separate existence, may be one of the clues to what, what needs to happen in, in basketball and in football, uh, men's basketball. The, I think the coaches who have been brought in in the last couple of years, uh, they're people who are known for having values that are our values. In one case, uh, Mike London in football, a coach who has been very successful in teaching students the values of the honor system, the importance of academic attainment, the importance of being integrated into the community in, in addition to being uh, great athletes. That may be one of the, uh, one of the necessary clues. The Tom Wolfe uh, novel, uh, I am Charlotte something. What's the last name? Charlotte Simmons. Simmons. Uh, I don't know how well you know the story, but Wolf had a daughter at Duke. He had a son here. But he made a decision to, uh, to use Duke as a kind of, uh, not Duke literally, but Duke in a kind of satiric way, the model of the campus. And so he located this DuPont University in some indefinable place. Uh, for reasons I can't explain, Nan Cahane, who was the president of Duke, let Wolf live in Duke dorms for two months. And so uh, Wolf, those of you who know him can picture this, but he was collecting notes constantly, not trying to represent the literal culture as he saw it, but trying to build a basis for the fiction that would be credible. And out of it came a novel that has been remarkably important in the way people have thought about how universities uh, integrate their cultures, how athletes are engaged or not engaged, how fraternities and sororities are. The key to growth here, I think, especially in the, in the year since we realized that it was going to happen no matter what, with the policy that said that we would automatically grow 100 or 150 each year. The key to it has been bringing students into the, the wealth or the cultural richness of the student culture. The honor system is an incredible teacher because it teaches both responsibility for yourself and what's more important is responsibility for the people around you. Uh, we've all seen the situation of someone who has known about an honor violation and has had to make the decision to report it, or someone who has, in more recent years, been selected to sit on one of the randomly constituted juries. The early introduction to community responsibility that that system teaches I'm convinced is a fundamental reason for the coherence of the student culture as we see it. Uh, adding to that the institutional pride that was developed in, for example, in Terry's terms as a basketball coach or in George Welch's time as football coach, or to go further, in Dom Starge's time as the men's lacrosse coach. The chance to see our students who belong to the student body, who are, are part of the everyday scene, performing at the level of the best and an and even share of times prevailing. That's really important. Uh, Bob's explanation of our belief that you can't be selectively excellent, that you have to be committed to excellence across the board, 
seems to me to be fundamental to retaining the values of the culture in a university that's no longer the size it was. Uh, when the college had 3,600 students or whatever it had when I was a student, it's a very different place. And I guess I would say it was probably not as good a place. Uh, those of you in my class, we were not a particularly attractive bunch of guys. <laughs> and, uh, the the uh, you know, the successes that people achieve in later life are, in a sense, built on whatever culture we have as students. And this is part of it. In the American system, it's very important. All right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask one final question for a brief answer, kind of a light answer, but I'm also going to have a few questions at least before we adjourn. We started about 10 minutes late. Well, we may finish 10 minutes late, but I want you to line up at the, let's see, we got two or several mics. I can't see them all. Four mics, actually, that I can see. One, two, three, four. Uh, be bold. You're University of Virginia graduates, for goodness sakes. I don't have to tell you that. Line up. Get ready for your question. And in the interim, I'd like the panel to answer one or the other, or both if you want, thinking back over your tenure at the university. What's the most memorable visit by a dignitary that you can recall, or what's the funniest thing that happened that nobody knows about until now? <laughs> Who wants to start us off? I'll ask for a volunteer, Bob. Well, uh, when I first came to uh, Virginia, we all know there are all these secret societies, and um, uh, I had a son who's now actually doing quite well, lives in Los Angeles, but was in high school and was a real problem kid. And on Halloween night, uh, about one o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden we get a knock on the door. It's dark. We're in bed. This is uh, Halloween's over. And there are six or seven men, I mean grown people in uh, skeleton uh, garb with uh, uh, masks on. And my first thought was, oh my God, Matt has joined a cult, and they're coming <laughs> to get him. And so I've got, the, I've got the shade open, I'm yelling, get away from here, I'm calling the police, I'm calling the police, and, and they finally left, and so about 20 minutes later, I opened the door, and there was a framed, uh, there, I didn't know that around uh, 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 Halloween, there's a thing called the Pumpkin Society, and because they were recognizing me and they had a frame thing thanking me for my work, and I like. <laughs> <laughs> so I became the biggest wuss at UVA, right? <laughs> hey, Bob, you're just lucky they weren't the naked marauders. <laughs> that would have been really memorable, but that's another story. Tim, what about you? So a couple of the people on the stage know this, few other people know this, that, that my, my first year we uh, were fortunate enough to get a very large pair of gifts from the Claude Moore Foundation, one for the medical education building, one for the nursing education building. And I got a call from a board member of the Claude Moore Foundation and said, would you like to come to my house and pick up the two checks? And one is for a million and a half dollars made out to the School of Nursing, and one is for three million dollars made out to the School of Medicine. 
And I went charging over there 10 o'clock at night and got out my new Blackberry, having my two new, you know, my new checks, wrote John Leonard and Gene Block and said, um, I am in receipt of a check for a million and a half dollars made out to the School of Nursing and $3 million made out to the School of Medicine, and I've changed my name to school. (laughs) (laughs) It gets better. So I, you know, and, and I'm going to Brazil. And so Gene Block, the provost at the time, writes back and says, Dear school, wait a little bit, wait a little bit longer until you can change your name to university. <laughs> That's great. All right, Leonard. All right, I, um, I'll run, risk one more. Um, the life of a president is extraordinarily demanding, and uh, there are always times when we're encouraging John, and he occasionally has come up with ideas on his own as to how he can find a way, <laughs> find a way to break the monotony and to get away from things and to have a little bit of a peace. So, so several years ago, John decided that, that he was going to purchase a 34-foot Airstream motorized... 37 feet. 37-foot... <laughs> motorized Airstream vehicle. Um, and, and it was located in Florida. There were only five of them made, and the most significant thing is one of them was made for Elvis Presley. Am I right on that, or is it somebody like that? My fi- one of them was made for, uh, who was the actress in Pretty Woman? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She had one. I thought her if she too. had one, I should have one. Yeah, her too. Uh, <laughs> so, John, so John goes down to Florida to pick this up, and um, it's not like he doesn't know how to drive something that large. He did, was a substitute bread truck driver in his earlier days. <laughs> and so he starts back from Florida with this, this vehicle. Um, and yes, as you might expect, it had been sitting in, um, in, in a lot for some time, and it broke down on the way, and they had a little trouble making it around Atlanta, but he got it back here. But the thing that I want to clarify uh, is is that there are a lot of rumors about, A, what happened to it, and B, a particular incident. Um, I got a panic call on a Friday afternoon, uh, which John doesn't often do. He's a big email person, and I respond quickly to his emails, or else I'll get another one. And, and, I, and I got this call on a Friday afternoon, and I was to come to Cars Hill immediately. And I didn't know what it was. I had not gotten many of those. I get up there, and John is in his 37-foot Airstream. It's crossways the road, and it's difficult to go in either direction. What I want to clarify is I did not take over the wheel and turn it around, but for about 30 minutes, he and I were up there with him driving and me directing traffic. And, and if you want to publicize something in this university, do it on Friday afternoon in conspicuous place. Uh, as we did, and it it made it all around. On the story about what happened to it, uh, I can't verify this, but I understand that Betsy may have said it's either me or the Airstream that got out. That's what she said. (laughs) Well, how close a call was it? No, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
You know, what happened to that thing is that I gave it to my brother, and he, he used it for a couple of years, and then he got to adding up the cost of maintaining it, which was phenomenal. I, I didn't understand that when a vehicle is custom-built, you can't go to Radio Shack and buy a replacement piece for the radio, that everything has to be made to order. So it was killing me financially, and my brother put it on the market. It now belongs to a company that makes fire trucks, and they sent it back to Airstream to have it gutted and set it up as a mobile cocktail lounge. <laughs> and if, if you buy a fire truck from them, you fly into the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, the Airstream picks you up, and it takes you in drunken splendor to somewhere out in the middle of the Great Plains. <laughs> See, we're back was, to Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> John was very proud of that, and, but the thing he was most proud of is you could, and he demonstrated it frequently, uh, including on a trip that he took it to Virginia Tech for one of the away football games, you could push a button and the sofa would turn into a bed. I'm not going beyond that. <laughs> John, I think it's your turn. <laughs> the Airstream also had a new toned Kitchen of Tomorrow, uh, which was last built in 1958. But it, it had a thing that would make pickles, it had a thing that would make bread, and everything ran off the same drive and so I'd have four or five processes going on at one time. It, it even had a blender so you could make drinks on the thing. It was a <laughs> great asset to have. Uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you two things. One about a real dignitary. Uh, I was fascinated one day when uh, the Emperor Japan had not traveled outside Japan and not to this country uh, ever. And the emperor came and he asked to come to Charlottesville. Now, we have heads of state who come occasionally, but the emperor uh, fascinated me for a number of reasons. One is that he's a botanist and a fairly good one. It was like, it was like walking the grounds with V. Runt because he knew every tree intimately. But he had a list of trees that Jefferson had acquired from a merchant in Philadelphia that were Asian or Japanese trees, and he wanted to see those trees. So the ginkgos and the, uh, some of those large trees in front of the rotunda <laughs> he had each tree uh, on his list, and he was checking off what he saw. Uh, we came to a place where they had set up a rope uh, to provide a little buffer for him as he went into the rotunda. And he, instead of turning into the rotunda, turned into the crowd because there were several hundred Asian persons gathered there. And he would he would speak to somebody and he would say, are you Korean or are you Japanese? Are you Korean or are you Chinese? It interested me that he was not able immediately to know the ethnicities of these people. But as soon as he understood, he shifted to the appropriate language and carried on very intense conversations with these people. Uh, one other one that I think is, is, if you know my son Lars, Lars is the one who's very tall. Uh, the Dalai Lama was here during a... Uh, conference of Nobel Prize winners. And there was a, uh, a cocktail hour at Cars Hill. And the Dalai Lama was not participating in that, but he was talking to people. And at some point, I realized that he had been in the corner of the parlor with Lars for quite a long time. So I, I walked over to see what was going on. And Lars is saying to the Dalai Lama, I still don't understand what you're the Dalai Lama of. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you 
tell you a similar story that goes back and then I'll quit. When I was president at the University of Connecticut, Gerald Ford used to come out and spend weekends with us. He knew some people in the neighborhood and we had a, a guest wing that he used. And he would typically have dinner with us on Friday night and he liked to play with the children. So they would go into a sunroom and they would play various games. And uh, one morning after President Ford had left, uh, we were having breakfast and Lars says, you know that President Ford guy? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said, he's not really as dumb as he acts. <laughs> this is great. I think we should just continue with this, this line of questioning. I think we have time for two questions. And I'm, let me start. Uh, I guess you two are it. You, you're two lined up. So let's go with our... Lady first and gentleman second. Thank you so much. And th first of all, thank you, gentlemen, for such a wonderful, open, and fun discussion. I remember once before when the university was going through a growth period, the mayor of Charlottesville said, living with the university is like sleeping with an elephant. And I feel like the elephant's getting ready to roll over. And with your talking about 38,000 students, I think the elephant's getting ready to need a king-size bed. And what are you going to do with Charlottesville on this growth? The strategy right now, and of course the president-elect and the board will eventually have to decide on this, is actually to try to encapsulate the growth the way we've encapsulated the current growth within the footprint. We have a large parcel, several hundred acres, of undeveloped land that is accessible from the grounds uh, through a road that can be cut through under the bypass in the vicinity of the stadium. And the, the thesis is that we should do as little as possible damage to our neighbors. We have no neighbors out there uh, except the back of our golf course, uh, protected land, and the, uh, the freeway. Uh, I think the concern that the mayor has, or several mayors have talked to us about this, it's a very valid concern. The other side of it is that the growth is going to happen whether we plan it or not. And so the issue is to plan it in such a way that we, we uh, contain it physically, we, we build a stronger local economy while we're also building a stronger university. There was a, a state senator years ago whose name was Curry Carter. And I don't know where Senator Carter came from, but there was a dispute about the size of the university when it was about 4,000 students. I think it was part of the debate about coeducation. And I went to a hearing in Richmond where there was a presentation against the university's growth in Charlottesville. And Senator Carter listened for a while and he said, look, I'll tell you what. I don't know where he was from, say Waynesboro or Suffolk or somewhere. He said, we'll just move the whole thing to my town and you all can do whatever you will. <laughs> I, I think the issue is, is to plan collaboratively to realize that we are part of a neighborhood we live here, we grow our children, we raise our children here, we belong to, uh, to Charlottesville. I am surprised that the growth from 14 or 15,000 to 22,000 has been so peaceable. Everybody was concerned about it at the beginning, but the, the concept of containing it within the footprint uh, has been the, uh, the trick. John, if I could just add one, one point to the state senator. This is another state senator. I'm not going to mention his name. You'll understand why. <clears throat> this state senator who represented this area many, many years ago was asked whether the growth of the University of Virginia uh, should be north or south of Charlottesville. And here was his answer. I really don't care. I own land in both places. 
issued insight into the legislative process. Sir. So first, Larry, I'd like to compliment you on your moderation. We, um, Thank you. They're so easy to moderate. Actually, I was referring to the fact that we've heard three book references this morning, none of them yours. There, there's still time. Why, why would I do that? You already have them. I'm told there's a fine opportunity tomorrow morning to remedy that. That's right, yes. John, I'd like to ask you a bit about your, your leadership philosophy. I, we've heard today about several uh, things that you value, obviously your sense of urgency, your, uh, your desire to surround yourself with excellent people, your willingness to listen to criticism and respond to it uh, productively. But I wonder, as you look back on 20 years, what your top couple leadership secrets are that we might learn from I have to say that I don't really have much of a philosophy about that. I've, I've sort of focused on jobs that we had to do. But uh, the day I moved into my office, Bill Sublet, whom some of you will know at the time was working in the Alumni Association, came over and gave me a little note as a personal gift. Uh, Edwin Alderman had written to uh, Billy Lambeth, who at the time was in Leonard's role in the university. And the note uh, was actually typed. You could see that it had been type one finger at a time, but it was typed. And it said, uh, Dear Dr. Lambeth, no, it said Dr. Lambeth, uh, please take this letter, something that was attached to it, and do with it whatever you should, and let me know when it's done. So if there's a philosophy, it's, it's delegating in such a way that people really make decisions for which they are accountable. Uh, we try not to meddle in the way Meredith runs the college. We try to be helpful in Larry's Center for Politics, but we don't tell Larry how to do it. And when we, we operate in teams, there are a lot of things that happen where, say, Tim is the leader of the team. Many things where Leonard is. There are a lot of elements involving funding where Bob is, and others are. But the, the way it works is that when the team goes to work on something that is within someone's expertise, uh, whether Leonard is presiding or I'm presiding, that the presiding person steps aside and the team falls into place behind the person who's best able to do it. But I, I've kept that note from Edwin Alderman. It's, it's on the, the uh, top of the fireplace in my office. The fireplace is a fake. But uh, the, uh, I love it. You know, do with this what you should and tell me when it's done. Uh, it, it confers responsibility and accountability. It's gentle in the way it passes along the job. I, I think that doing good quietly and acknowledging the contributions of people who do important things is a major part of, of what anyone does in an organization that succeeds. And to work with people of the quality of, of, of Leonard and Tim and Bob is an enormous uh, asset if you're in, in the kind of position I have. Uh, the the glue that's held it together is largely of Leonard's making. The envisioning that goes into the, the developing of great plans, uh, I'll use one that was before Tim's time, but the Virginia 2020 plans, in hindsight, were quite brilliant in laying out strategies to achieve defined goals. 
Many people saw them only as promises that a given office would be located on the fourth floor of a new building. But that really is not what they're about. They're about becoming different and, and how you achieve that goal. The collaboration between Tim and Bob is a very independent collaboration. I hope that helps some because that's what I understand about them. And that's a good note on which to end. I hate to end because we've learned a lot and I think we've also had fun. Now you know that I'm going to conclude with a citation from our founder. Uh, in a letter to Thomas Pinckney, Mr. Jefferson said, I contemplate the approach of my retirement with the fondness of a sailor who has land in view. I want, on behalf of all of us here, every single alumnus of the University of Virginia and friend of the University of Virginia, to thank you all for steering the ship of our university for so well for so long. Thank you. Please join me. Oh, you're supposed to sit. <laughs> uh -uh. Uh -uh.